Hello, and welcome to In Person, brought to you by Bizabo. In each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Brandon Raffles. TechCrunch Disrupt is the original event for founders, VCs, and the larger startup community. Central to the event is the Startup Battlefield, where select founders have the opportunity to pitch their product to a panel of judges. Since launching in 2010, Disrupt has grown from a humble gathering to a huge event comprised of nearly 10,000 attendees. Leading the operations behind Disrupt and TechCrunch's fence and advertising programs is Joey Hinson. Joey has been with TechCrunch for over seven years, and during that time has seen firsthand how the organization's event program has grown. During our conversation, we discuss the challenges of scaling Disrupt, the value of qualitative feedback, why sometimes you shouldn't actually serve food to your attendees, the future of event technology, and how events are helping to democratize the startup landscape. Joey's appreciation for technology and his belief in the power of events to not only bring people together, but also further innovation was eye-opening for me. I'm really excited to share his story with you. Okay, let's get to it. Joey. Brendan. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that you're a pretty big fan of technology. What's an early memory you have of being wowed by tech? And if you're a little embarrassed, I can share my my own memory first, if that helps. Please. Yeah, so uh, for me, it was the Tamagotchi. Are you familiar? I'm not. It was uh, a little, uh, it was basically a keychain that was like a, a cyber pet. Uh, mm. And basically, you took care of it, you fed it, you cleaned up after it, after it made messes, using like one or two buttons on a keychain. Ah, very, very cool. <laughs> and to me, it was like having a pet, yeah. but, but not actually having one. Wow. Kind of well, sad now that I think about it. Yeah, not so sad. I thought, you know, those things are going to be a bigger and bigger part of our life. Well, mine was the Zenith Z100. My father bought one for our house when I was seven. And uh, just, I'm going to go ahead and date myself. It was 1982 (laughs) in Selma, Alabama. We must have been in the 1% of people that had home computers there. And my dad taught me enough basic that I could make words repeat indefinitely on the screen uh, and I was able to print huge banners with a dot matrix printer over multiple pages. And I don't even know if you know what this is, but there, there was this thing called pin feed paper. So it No, these, I don't. Yeah. So it was all, there were these rails on the side and it would move the paper through at a, at a given pace when it was done with the line. And my trick for all my friends and then also for myself was I would print happy birthday signs over like 20 pages of, you know, legal size paper in 100-point <laughs> font. So that that was my first wow. I didn't actually have to write with a pencil anymore. Yeah, you were, you were the, the tech whiz. Yeah, definitely my neighborhood. <laughs> That's so cool. And obviously, you know, those early skills you had with technology have very much transferred to what you're doing today. Uh, you are the director of operations over at TechCrunch. Yep. To set the stage for the rest of our conversation today, could you tell us a little bit about TechCrunch and your role there. Yeah. 
So I do a lot for TechCrunch, and that's just because I've been here a while and we still think like a startup. If somebody told me to take out the trash, I would. If somebody told me to vacuum the floors, I would. And then if somebody told me, why don't you make five-year projections for our finances today, I would do that too. But my role is specifically to be the team leader for our advertising sales and event sales team. That's what I'm formally charged with. And then on top of that, there's this layer of being the point of contact for our company finances with our parent company, Verizon Media. And really, in all of that, if you had to distill one thing out of it, I'm responsible for making sure our revenue is on track with where we say it would be through both our advertising sales and our event revenue operations. And you've been with TechCrunch for over seven years. How did you first end up at TechCrunch and what led you to this specific leadership role that you have today? It was kind of an interesting way to come aboard at TechCrunch back then. I was working for an event agency called Mosaic. And I was hired through Mosaic to help produce the second Disrupt in San Francisco. We, TechCrunch had done one in New York a few months before, but the one in San Francisco was brand new in terms of Disrupt. And I was working with the original team, Heather, Hardy, and Tanya, to produce the event. And then while I was working with them in this first year, AOL bought TechCrunch. And everybody left. So there was this, this huge cultural shift in AWOL brought on Ned Desmond to be the COO. And he was ha really happy with the way that I had navigated and kept everything on track through all this cultural chaos. You know, I just right. operated as though it was business as usual. And he offered me a job, and that's why I joined. And then I went on. Because at the time, you were still working with Mosaic. Yeah, yeah. So he poached me, essentially. <laughs> um, and, and the way TechCrunch came to Mosaic was uh, Mosaic was really deeply tied to all of the mover and shakers in San Francisco. Mosaic was an event agency that served like BlackRock, their big financial institution, and Barclays, and all, a lot of the tech companies. So they were really known in the community that TechCrunch hung out in, essentially. It was a referral, and then I did work, and they liked my work, and then they poached me. That's how things go in San Francisco. <laughs> and so when they brought you on, you were mainly in charge of Disrupt? Disrupt and any other events that we did. We did these things called meetups back then. I was the director of events, essentially. And so we started doing these things called meetups. And yeah, Disrupt. That was my charge. And now today, not only are you managing Disrupt and events, but you are also overseeing these other functions around advertising and revenue as well. I slipped in an MBA there right when I started. Okay. I, I was accepted to UCSD and I spent the first two years of my job here at TechCrunch also getting my MBA. After I finished that, Ned decided that he would broaden my role given that I'd added some new functionality to my working professional life. I'd love to dive a little bit more into Disrupt. While TechCrunch produces several events across the world, the most recognizable is TechCrunch Disrupt. It's basically the OG startup conference out there. In your own words, how would you describe the event? TechCrunch is relentlessly devoted to finding the best startups in the world. And Disrupt is the premier competition and event to get your startup on the world stage through our Startup Battlefield competition. We focus on seed and pre-seed companies through Startup Battlefield. It's been around, as you said, since 2010, actually. And 
all the companies that have pitched on the stage there, they've raised eight billion, close to eight billion dollars, if I'm remembering our stats right. And if you invested wow. in those companies, you'd be a top quartile VC. You would be a very, very, very rich individual right now. So we're really good at picking startups. And we're a great place for startups to, you know, announce and launch their company. You mentioned startup battlefield. Is this sort of a battle bots or sort of WWE situation? You know, it's got a really fiery name. It basically, we put out a call to action. We get anywhere from a thousand to 3000 applications and we whittle it down to 15 companies that we then coach over a period of about a month. Sometimes it's as little as two weeks, but two weeks to a month. And we get these companies stage ready and then they bring their ideas or their companies to disrupt. And <clears throat> over three days, they pitch their, their companies in front of a judges. So like Marissa Mayer would be a judge, Ashton Kutcher would be a judge. And so they pitch to these judges and they get feedback from them. VCs are also judges. Bill Gurley would be a judge. And also TechCrunch writers would be judges. And they get feedback on their companies. It's There is some drama around it. It's not quite Shark Tank. It's not BattleBots. <laughs> the type of companies that have won are like AI companies, Forethought AI. There was also a really cool company called liquidity that invented this tube that basically or this bottle that would filter out you know water from the ganges into something that's drinkable so they oh, wow. won one year so those are the type of companies that participate and it sounds like it's not only a competition but also has this coaching element to it as well right yeah nisha tombe is our director our battlefield director and once we've got it down to the final 15, she contacts them, she starts taking them through their pitches, and then she essentially helps them write a script for what they do on stage and goes through their deck and finds all of the different sort of pitfalls that may not be in there. Like a team from Harvard might just focus on something really esoteric, but they don't talk about the fact that they're all from Harvard and they all studied, you know, some astrophysics and are the most talented in that region. So it's important to talk about your team. Or sometimes they forget to talk about their product or their go-to-market, and she just helps them get it all in line. Those are some skills that the participants not only get to make use of in the startup battlefield, but also a future in their careers with their company or elsewhere. Yeah, we also have outside VCs sit into the, on these things. So by the time you're done, you should be able to walk into Sequoia Capital's boardroom and pitch. You could pitch your startup in front of Sequoia, Kleiner, anybody after you get done going through the process to get ready for Startup Battlefield. You mentioned that the first Disrupt launched in 2010. Yeah. And over the years, there have been some big changes. Yes. I'd love to talk about the sheer size of the event. I think it's quite an accomplishment that what started as a modest gathering of startups, VCs, tech insiders, and press is on its way to becoming a 10,000-person event. What are some of the unique challenges that Disrupt has faced in the wake of this huge growth and how has the team addressed it? As you grow in San Francisco, one of the weirdest things that's a problem is venues, right? There are only so many places you can go as you get bigger. We started off at a place called the Concourse, which is now a multi-billion dollar condo complex. And the Concourse was literally a train station at one point in time. After they kicked us out of there, we went to the piers, in San Francisco. And then after you get above 5,000 people, there's there's only 
a few options, and Moscone is really the option. So we had to go to Moscone, and we'd never done a whole host of things, like had hotel room nights and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, we had to pony up and say, hey, we're going to basically be liable for a million dollars in in hotel room nights in order to do this mm-hmm. thing at Moscone, because you can't go to Moscone unless you have a hotel room block. So that was one thing. It was really odd logistic thing, but it's it's really hard. And kind of a risk too. Yeah, it's a huge risk. So, we, you know, not only are we in the business of selling tickets and selling sponsorships and creating great content, now we got to make sure we sell a bunch of hotel rooms on behalf of the hotels in, in San Francisco. That was hard. Marketing. Marketing is, is becomes incredibly more difficult, right? Like we used to just announce everything on techcrunch.com and that's pretty much it. That got the job done. 3,500 people would show up, 5,000 people would show up. You know, reaching an audience of 10,000 people and getting them on site, it's an international marketing operation and it requires some very sophisticated marketing techniques. So that was, that was pretty brutal. And then yeah. also we have a lot of content, but we were always one main stage and we had to take the conference from a single track to a multi-track conference. And we're still actually developing our multi-track strategy. There are a couple of things there I'd love to unpack a little bit more. One is the promotional aspect, the marketing aspect of the event. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there were some changes that you had to make. Are you able to, to share with us uh, a little bit about what some of those strategies were? are? Sure. One is just getting technology involved, right? We use a Marketo, which, I mean, there are a lot of different marketing databases out there, but we chose Marketo. Right. And, you know, you start collecting names in this database, but then you have to deploy all kinds of things like pixels so that you can figure out where people are converting and getting the technology deployed, not just getting the database, but deploying all the tracking technology. That was a huge thing so that we knew where best to apply our attention and our resources. And then the other side of it is content, right? Like announcing speakers was no longer enough. So we had to become more and more sophisticated about the content that we presented to potential attendees. Everything from just like, hey, these are the deadlines that are coming up. You know, we had to be really clear about that to like, these are the reasons you should attend. Not just because the speakers are there, but, you know, X, Y, and Z, the networking, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to really become more explicit about explaining ourselves on all the different fronts and the benefits around coming to disrupt. Those are the really the, the big things. Sounds like a lot of advances in technology, getting more sophisticated with retargeting, but also affecting a more comprehensive promotional strategy and making yeah. sure you're covering all the different aspects of the event. Yeah. Throughout this process, have there been any discoveries with data? The one thing that we added to our events that generated really valuable data was the survey part of it. Like, you know, we we would kind of lightly ask people in a Google form to give us feedback, but now we're, you know, the minute the conference is over, you got an email in your inbox that's asking you to do a survey and we incentivize you to take the survey. And the net promoter score and then all the different categories of feedback really helped us decide what we would and would not do. And, you know, there's an old adage in business, right? It's like, it's not what you choose to do, it's what you choose not to do, right? Uh, Where you put your efforts. 
And it's and those surveys and the data and the feedback that we got from that really informed a lot of things around what we don't do. There are all the other typical things about, you know, tracking pixels, like we know where our core audience is, where they live, like their geographic location, their demographics, all that sort of stuff. But it, it doesn't really differ anything from the data that we collect on TechCrunch.com. You know, our readers are our attendees, but the feedback right. part of it, I would say, is really the key driver. Are there any specific discoveries you've made from that feedback that have had a substantial impact on the event? Venue. <laughs> people like to be really comfortable. You know, when you're trying to serve a wide audience, people have sort of homogenized needs along those lines. They need a place to sit. They need power. They need, you know, this, that, and the other. So that's one. Food. Here's a weird thing. No matter how much we spent on the food, we couldn't get it right. So we just stopped doing it. You know, the feedback was so bad that we were just like, you know, I mean, and literally it's like spend a million dollars, spend $10,000, the results were the same. So we were just, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, you know, your net promoter score goes up because you're not doing something that brought it down. And oh, wow. pe people never told us that they, that they were mad at us for not serving food. They were just upset with us when we did it incorrectly. So people want deep dives in things that they're interested in. And so that was another thing that really changed our strategy. It's like, somebody's interested in mobility, they want to hear a lot about mobility and they want to meet a lot of people in the mobility space. Yeah, there's this top, you know, top level startup piece, but it's really, there's also a click down where it's like, I'm interested in mobility. And if one in 20 people that I meet are mobility people, that's not good enough for me. And if one in 20 sessions is about mobility, that's not good enough for me either. I want to see a track along those lines. I want to meet a lot of companies and a lot of people. So we that it's helped us adjust our, uh, adjust our content strategy too. Okay, so it's had a big impact on the content strategy. And speaking of which, you mentioned earlier this shift to a multi-track setup. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about content at Disrupt, the types of sessions that are available and how your team goes about curating them? Not only pulling from this feedback, but how else? Well, I mean, there's a few different approaches, right? So we're doing a session on space or a lot of sessions on space at Disrupt this year. And we just think this is a huge area of opportunity for startups to grow in the future. The barrier of entry for starting a startup in space is lowered. We were talking to somebody that's a, an expert in space and they said something really, really, really interesting. They were like, you know, it used to cost $10 million dollars to deploy one satellite. Now you can deploy an entire fleet of satellites for $10 million. That's a logarithmic lowering of the barrier to entry for a startup that really sort of says that that space is going to be hot in the near future. Everything from like the actually getting to space to all the accoutrements around space. I think I read somewhere that there's going to be a hotel in space by 2025. Now I think that that's probably ambitious and I have no idea if that's true, but those are the kind of things that are going to be coming up, like hospitality and space. Who's thought about that, right? Yeah. And then um, we're also talking a lot about IPOs and going public. I'm not sure how aware of the IPO market you are this year, but Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, Zoom, PagerDuty, Slack, all went public. WeWork was going to go public. Maybe they won't go public now. Um, to be determined. Yeah, yeah. So there's just that trend piece that we've, we're focused on too, right? This is a coming of age of all the startups that we started talking about in 2010 and 2011. So that's, you know, we focus on trends too. And then there's 
how-tos for startups, right? So we were talking about HR and talent. So if you're a startup founder, one of your next biggest question after you get a big check is like, how am I going to hire all the people that I need to do to get all this stuff done that I just promised this VC I was going to do? So talent is a big topic. So we cover big topics that are relevant to founders. And that's another way that we choose content and pick content. And doing this, do you pull at all from what is trending or popular and the TechCrunch publication? Writers have a sixth sense for this stuff. I mean, they don't have to look at data. They're in it every day and they just, they're part of the content creation process and they just stick their head up and say, this is what we're talking about. If you went through and retroactively looked at it, the data would support their decisions. And there's a content committee that all, that decides on this stuff. And, you know, when these topics come up, we do, we do some rigor, but it doesn't start off quite as analytical as sure. you are sort of implying there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. TechCrunch has come a long way since 2010, as we discussed. In 2014, TechCrunch Disrupt was featured on HBO's Silicon Valley, which, as some of our listeners may know, takes a pretty comedic approach to tech and tech culture. People, are you ready? Are you ready for the ultimate tech startup competition? Let me hear it. Disrupt! What was the reaction like to the show after it aired? Did you see a spike in registrations, more chatter online? We didn't see a spike in registrations directly after it launched, but we definitely saw a spike in brand awareness. And I think that's even better. You know, people would come up to me and they're like, oh, you work for TechCrunch? Did you see that thing they did on HBO? And people assume that we would be, you know, kind of, upset about some of the portrayals in there, but we didn't actually, we're not upset about it. Um, we actually sent all of our stuff to Mike Judge and he consulted really closely with some of the people here at TechCrunch to get that done. And we're we're of the opinion that any, any mention is a good mention, just like any news is good news. Yeah, I think it's probably helped our brand equity, but I couldn't pinpoint where in terms of like ticket sales or, you know, page views or whatever. How does your operations team work with other teams at TechCrunch to make Disrupt happen? That's a, that's a good question. We talk a lot. We talk a lot, a lot, a lot. We go, we do research, we put together our thoughts as a group, as a business unit, as an event team. And then we take those conversations and we check in with editorial, we check in with our product team, check in with our marketing team, you know, all the things. And then after we build some sort of internal consensus that this is something we want to do, then we move forward with it. But it's honestly, it's a lot of talking and a lot of research. You mentioned earlier how important attendee feedback is and, and really measuring the event from a qualitative perspective in that respect. And you also mentioned how Disrupt is a revenue generator. Mm -hmm. How would you say you and the rest of TechCrunch evaluates the success of the event? So we look at our net promoter score. That's one way. We also look at our media reach. So it's really important for us to understand how far out in the media world we've gone because when we go around the world with 130 stories or 200 stories or whatever it is, that means the message of the startups that were at Disrupt went with them. 
So media reach is a big one. How many stories were published? How many outlets were involved in publishing those things? Who were the writers of other publications that wrote about it? And then we also, you know, really easy measure, we look at total attendance. And then we look at the demographics of those attendees. Were these people the right people to be a disrupt? And then we look at financial success, right? Did we hit our marks? On that front, we've been growing the event every year. We haven't taken a step back since I've gotten here. And that's saying something, you know, it, 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 while the economy's been growing and everything else has been great, it hasn't been a straight line. And it's not easy to do. There have been a lot of conferences that have come and gone. So we, we, we've done okay. And then we also ask ourselves at the end of it, do we do the right thing for founders? So it doesn't matter if it was big, if it made us a lot of money, if it went all around the world, but if we didn't do the right thing for the startups, it was not a successful conference. Aside from the really amazing content, the opportunities to network and connect with VCs and get feedback from industry insiders, what else would you attribute to the event successfully growing? We're a news organization. So I would say the voice and style of TechCrunch.com has really brought a level of brand equity to disrupt that no other publication or no other event uh, really has access to. So I'd say that's our, our one key differentiator in the, the thing that's made it so successful is that TechCrunch.com publishes every day and they publish in a way, in a style, in a voice that keeps TechCrunch relevant and interesting and that follows on to disrupt. You mentioned how there's a growing global reach of the Disrupt brand. I know that one of the earliest Disrupt events happened in Beijing. And since then, uh, San Francisco and Berlin have become the regular host cities. My question for you is, when making that leap from San Francisco to Berlin, what were some considerations that you took into account? For instance, why Berlin? And how would you go about localizing the experience for that market? So the first question is, are there any startups there? And there are a ton of startups in Berlin. There are a ton of startups in London, and we did disrupt there too, but we went back to Berlin for various reasons. So are there any startups? And then the second question is, is there money in the ecosystem for the startups? And if you can check that box, you're, you're in a pretty good place. And then the next question is, can startup founders from other places get there? London is an expensive place to hang out, right? So, you know, even spending a week in London could put a startup team back $10,000, $20,000. And that's money they're not putting towards their, their startup. So when you look at a place like Berlin, founders, we had a huge international participation from around... Um, Europe, it was like 60-40 split, 60 outside of Germany. And people could afford to come to Germany and Berlin in particular for the event. And it was centrally located, right? People were driving from other parts of Europe. That's not really an option for the UK, for instance. Or if we did this like in Italy, like way, way south or, you know, on an island in Greece, that wouldn't be an option. So that's another important part of it, accessibility. And, and, and those are the main factors, really. Great. And this is all with Disrupt, but outside of the Disrupt event umbrella, 
understand that TechCrunch and, and yourself have recently started producing events in international locations that don't typically receive the startup spotlight. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about this program and how it is contributing to the democratization of tech? So last year, we did three events, which I really think are crowning achievements for TechCrunch. We did a startup battlefield in Lagos, Nigeria. We did a startup battlefield in Beirut, Lebanon, and we did a startup battlefield in Sao Paulo. We didn't do all of the other disrupt things like have a big main stage. We didn't have a big expo hall. All, it was all about the competition for the entrepreneurs. And this program has been the result of a goal of ours that we've had since 2012 or 2013. I can't remember exactly when we started the idea. But it was really like, you know, Silicon Valley is great and lots of things are happening here and they're going to continue to happen. But as tech gets better and better and the barrier to entry gets lower and lower, we're going to see more and more important companies come from other places like Africa or different places in Southeast Asia or China or South America. And so we put a lot of resources around finding the right location where the ecosystems were starting to gain momentum in terms of the number of startups being formed. And then also adding in a partner that would help us go in because you can't do this alone, right? You need somebody who has a similar vision to help you do this. For instance, Facebook uh, was our partner when we did the Beirut, Lagos, and Sao Paulo events. We're going into places where there's a lot of startup activity, but there's not necessarily like a lot of money and a lot of success stories because at the end of the day, we think that interesting companies and interesting solutions are going to come from unusual places in the future. And it's really about also including founders of a diverse cultural backgrounds as well in, you know, diverse on all fronts. We want to make sure that they're part of the TechCrunch community when, and the TechCrunch story about founders and entrepreneurs. Okay, I, I'd love to turn the conversation to you. If you were to put on your futurist glasses, how would you like to see technology shape events in the future? And if you say anything around AI or blockchain, you will definitely get bonus points. There's one thing that people want to do at events most of the time, and that's connect with each other. So the future of events is moving closer to a place where when I go to an event, I can really quickly find the people that are aligned with me, whether that's taking all the data that I generate through my social media feeds and all the other things that I do and comparing that to other attendees, social media feeds and activity and data and saying, hey, this is the right person based on your behaviors. Or, you know, I have to take some survey that really puts me in a category and then takes those categories and puts all those people in those categories together. I don't know what it is. It's, it's technology definitely will have a role in it. I'm sure, you know, AI is a way to look at a lot of data and find correlations and causation and predict outcomes. So I'm sure AI will be used in, in uh, figuring all that sort of stuff out. But I think it's about like technology will help us connect with the people as well as the content that are most relative to us in real time and in real space and events in the future. Who's someone you look up to in events, marketing or business in general? The South by Southwest folks are, I think they're really impressive. They've been able to 
dial South by Southwest up in a lot of categories and they've kept their cool factor all at the same time. I've never been to South by Southwest, but I'm going for the first time this year. But I can tell you that from the outside, it looks like they're doing everything right. So I look up to the South by Southwest guys. Marketing is really simple. I look up to Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Google has done something that nobody else has been able to do. They tap into search. And I think search is just like being able to understand what somebody's looking for and connect them with what they're looking for. It's just, I mean, wow. It has been the biggest innovation in marketing in ever, probably. I would leave it at, on the event side, the South by Southwest guys, on the marketing front, I would say Google has it down and um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page really got it right. It's amazing stuff. Okay, between operations and events and advertising, you have a pretty large team on your hands. How would you describe your approach to training and managing your staff? I believe in setting goals for people and then coaching them on the way to achieving those goals. That's that's pretty much it. And then in terms of training, there's a couple of different things. I think that everybody should have general business knowledge, but then there are also tactical moments that come up in in your experience when you're operating. And I take those those moments and then have people do specialized training around those things in order to gain skill sets, like whether it's learning how to do automated marketing management or learning all the ins and outs of programmatic advertising or whatever. Okay, uh, final question. If you could give an earlier version of yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? The one piece of advice I would give my earlier self is to figure out how to prioritize and be ruthless about focusing on your top priority and excluding anything that's a distraction from that. I think prioritization of what you actually want to do in life is the key to, it's the keys to the kingdom, really. Whatever You can do whatever you want as long as you focus on it. And how has that impacted your, your day-to-day or would it have impacted your day-to-day? Yeah, I would have. When you know exactly what you want to do, you're not so concerned with pleasing other people or taking on everything that comes your way. It's okay to not do some things, but it's really important to do the right things. Like if you're if if marketing is something you're interested in, well then focus on marketing every single day. You know, and tell people no when they ask you to do this, that and the other that's not related to that. And soon they'll stop asking. But when you get good at doing the thing that you're focused on, people will ask you to do more and more and more of that thing. And you'll become more and more and more successful at it. So it just, it just, and it would have created a lot of opportunities for me a lot faster had I just been relentless about focusing on the thing that I wanted to do. That's amazing. Well, Joey, that's our time for today. Thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brendan. Okay. Thank you, Joey, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback on the show, please drop us a line at in-person at bispo.com. You can also find full transcripts of the show along with key takeaways at inpersonpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Brandon Rappelson. 
This has been in person, and I need to feed my Tamagotchi.